This is not the media. This is hell. Today on This Is Hell, we've told you before, whether it's coronavirus or any so-called natural disaster that is actually caused by human actions, we are definitely not all in this together, no matter how much feel-good news anchors, talk show hosts, or politicians want you to believe. But this lack of togetherness is a lot worse than we've even been saying here on This Is Hell. There's something called right-wing climate realism, and it basically says, sure, climate change is going to kill a lot of people. Hell, maybe most of them. But if I get all my ducks in a row now, I can make a profit off climate change, a literal killing, and set me and mine up forever in some walled-off neo-feudal world that will work just fine for us. In the meantime, we don't have to give up on cool climate change and freaky fossil fuel. Unless the rest of us get out of this mindset that climate change means the apocalypse, we do not stand a chance. Luckily, there is a left-wing climate realism, and it wants to sink this armed lifeboat mentality with the decolonial politics of a world relieved from social, economic, and ecological despair and exhaustion. We'll consider the fact that we are not all going to die, and if we want fewer of us to die, we better start considering climate change politics and fast when we talk in a few to social and political theorist Ajay Singh Chowdhury, author of the Baffler article, We're Not In This Together, There Is No Universal Politics of Climate Change. Ajay is the executive director of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research and a core faculty member specializing in social and political theory. And of course, we'll wrap up this week as we do most weeks with the moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. This week, for some reason, that is not in my deal right there. This week, Jeff urges us to stop being afraid of nature. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. As always, Eric, uh, Alex, Jerry. Eric. Eric, as always, Alex, Jerry. I got to drink more water. So is the family returning soon? Is your three-week hiatus over? Uh, yeah, they're back on Sunday. So how do you feel about that? Excited? I probably got to wipe the primer off my leg that I wiped on there like four days ago. <laughs> That's not bad for you, is it? Did you get all the work done? Uh, well, almost. Okay. Got to wipe the primer off my leg. <laughs> That's your <laughs> last step. It's okay to leave primer on your leg for like four days, right? This, uh, sure. I mean, you're ready to be painted now, right? <laughs> This week's question from L is, what should Chuck do to cure his stomach pain? What should Chuck do to cure his stomach pain? And before Alex reads any of the answers, I really appreciate a lot of your responses are actual things that I've never heard of before, so I really, truly appreciate your help. And Alex, while I'm reading this part, do you want to go turn off the air conditioning? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. Get your This Is Hell face mask today by going to thisishell.com. And clicking on support or be the person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail, which is, again, what should Chuck do to cure his stomach pain? You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we will be announcing a winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Alex, how did our listeners answer the question from hell since yesterday's show? Yeah, and if someone can uh, DM me at 9.55 every morning to make sure I turn off the damn air conditioner, I'd really appreciate that. I don't know how we keep forgetting this. I forgot it today. I blame myself. Uh, This week's question from hell is, how should Chuck treat his perpetual stomach pain? Lisa H. says, Miralax daily. Also make sure drinking water if it is diverticulosis. 
If it's really painful, you could have become it could have become diverticulitis and need antibiotics. Mm. Bradley R says walk. Oh, Bradley R says uh, walk it off, rub dirt on it. We yeah. talked about that yesterday. Uh, Magnus Z says I have this and it absolutely sucks. It does. Uh, Astrid N says stay away from Western medicine. <laughs> Max I says Wolf Spain. My favorite favorite. Yelp critique ever has got to be the Yelp critique of my doctor. And the first one that's posted up there says, uh, yet another practitioner of Western medicine. <laughs> of course, he's a doctor at a hospital. Uh, Christine M says, bleach, duh. Seriously, if you can afford it, a doctor. And if they suck and have no good answers and you're not bankrupt by the first doctor, maybe a second opinion? Garadel says, punch a Nazi. It might not help, but at least the Nazi will have been punched. <laughs> Kevin O says, snore the sidewalk blood dripping from the ears of septuagenarian Antifa super soldiers. <laughs> Gorilla G says, just build a nest and lay those eggs already. That's <laughs> <laughs> so gross. Uh, Lisa L says, hemp seed. You can get rid of those seeds, haven't you? Uh, Pen D says, you can find those anymore? No dairy, no wheat, lie low, eat mostly vegetables, cooked. Uh, so kill myself. <laughs> uh, Nick A says, cesarean section. Mm-hmm. Uh, ERJ says, peppermint oil eases spasms. I had no idea. I'm actually going to try that. Uh, and finally, Marshall M, or sorry, uh, Marshall W says, baby food, squatty potty, and amethyst. <laughs> I got one of those three I, things. Yeah, in I my don't house. know what you're supposed to do with the amethyst. <laughs> <laughs> Alex will have more of your. <laughs> I don't want to know either. That sounds very uncomfortable. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question mail. Following our guest, again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com or post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or DM them to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. We'll be announcing this week's winner at the end of the show today, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. So get your answers in now, and you still have a chance at winning a This Is Hell medical face mask which you can get right now by just going to thisishell.com and clicking on support and looking at all the stuff we have in our store. It's time for listener feedback and what you've been emailing us at chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com, or messaging us via Facebook and Twitter. Zachary writes to us via email about his answer to this week's question from hell, what I should do to soothe my aching stomach. Zachary says, hi, Chuck. This is an indirect answer to the question from hell. I live in Oregon, and nettle flows extensively here. We frequently don gloves to collect and dry the leaves for tea. Dehydrating weakens most of the stings, and making tea takes care of the rest. I'd be happy to send you some that I collected and dried if you like. I'll wear gloves and a mask for the whole process to keep it sanitary in case it might help your stomach. Yes, Zachary, definitely send me some nettle leaf, some nettle tea, whatever you got there. Our mailing address is at our website, thisishell.com, under contact. But in case you're listening right now, our address is thisishell2251 West Devon, D-E-V-O-N, Second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. My doctor advised against the nettle root extract in pill form, which I tried for a while and seemed to aggravate my stomach. But I have heard that nettle tea works, and I definitely want to try it, Zachary, so thank you very much. Send some my way as soon as possible. Zachary continues, my actual answer to the question from hell about how to cure your stomach is, stop watching the corporate media. I've been getting plenty of sympathetic stomach troubles watching all that bootlicking. Cheers, Zach. I gotta say, bootlicking does really upset my stomach. But Zachary, I watch corporate media so you don't have to and won't want to because it's crap. 
This week I saw Network lead their hour with the Chiron American Crisis, and another where they were talking about systemic racism is in everything in America. You'd think Crisis in America would be on Fox News, but it was on MSNBC, and you'd think the remark about systemic racism being in everything was on MSNBC, but it was not. It was on yesterday's Fox News show, Outnumbered. I know it's hard to believe that Fox would have someone on saying systemic racism is in everything in the United States. But (laughs) consider two things when you're going to be hearing this catchphrase, either by Joe Biden or Fox News for the next several months. You're going to hear it throughout the whole media. Systemic racism. Consider these two things. One, they don't say institutional racism. They say systemic racism. Systemic relates to a pattern not a particular part, so maybe they're trying to not blame individual police, but some kind of cultural, larger problem that might be something that's impossible to fix. Institutional, on the other hand, refers to a purposeful, permanent structure meant to influence lives with rules through enforcement of those rules. What we have here in the U.S. that Fox News and Republicans and even Joe Biden won't say, and that is something far beyond only systemic racism within the police, but institutional. So no, it is not that shocking that Fox calls racism systemic in the U.S. because that makes racism nobody's fault and just a part of life that is difficult, if not possible, not impossible, to overcome. You can't end racism, so what are you going to do is the new Fox and apparently Biden argument. Secondly, when you say it's not just the police, racism is systemic throughout the U.S., the attention is no longer on the police. This is a way to be seen as thoughtful while refusing to address the problem of racialized police violence, which is what Fox News and Joe Biden both do when they throw in the caveat, sure, but there's, a system, there's systemic racism in everything in the U.S., not just the police. I tell you what, for now, let's just focus on the cops who are killing black people, okay? And another thing I saw in the mainstream media this week, corporate mainstream media that nauseated me last Sunday, CNN's Jake Tapper asking Colin Powell, because he would be the expert on what's happening with the left here in the United States, asking Colin Powell, do you think the Democratic Party has gone too far left in the wake of the killings of George Floyd? Jesus, Zachary, you're right. I gotta stop watching corporate media. Miriam emailed us at chuck at thisishell.com. Miriam sent us a link to an article at alshabaka.org, the Palestinian Policy Network's website. And the story is headlined, In Palestine, COVID-19 Meets the Israeli Occupation. Miriam writes, it's a short story by Yara Hawari, but I heard her recently, and I think she has more to say about this. Yara reports the West Bank and Gaza Strip are confronting COVID-19 from a reality of Israeli military occupation, which weakens the ability of the Palestinian authorities and the Palestinian people to respond effectively to the deadly virus. While many healthcare systems around the world are struggling to deal with the pandemic, the 53-year occupation has seriously depleted medical capabilities in the West Bank and Gaza. The donor-dependent system has shortages in equipment, medication, and staff due to such issues as military raids and restrictions on imports. In the Gaza Strip in particular, deemed unlivable by the UN as a result of over 13 years of blockades and multiple wars, the healthcare system already struggled to deal with medical cases before the pandemic. Indeed, Gaza currently has only 78 ICU beds and 63 ventilators for a population of 2 million people. Thank you, Miriam, because I have not read anything on the impact of 
uh, COVID on Palestinians. However, I did see an article about how in the wake of George Floyd's murder, there has been a huge movement to recognize Israel's abuse of Arabs and Israelis are marching with Arabs. But you can bet it if it is happening to or with Palestinians, it will not be in the U.S. news. Uh, One last thing. During last week's listener feedback, I read an email from a listener who asked if we were going to discuss Michael Moore's new movie on climate change. I said it would take a hard pass because the movie has been panned by those who are far more expert at climate science than I am. The movie has been even been called dangerous, filled with inaccuracies and playing into the hands of climate change deniers who are now pushing the movie. Jeff Dorchin, who will have a moment of truth in a bit. He pointed out last week that Michael Moore only produced the movie and had little to do with the actual content of the movie. So if Michael Moore's name was not on that movie, likely nobody would be talking about how bad it is. It would be ignored. But we got another email on Michael Moore's dumb movie on climate change. This one from David. David writes, you do yourself and listeners a disservice to write of Michael Moore's new Humans movie. Well, first, I didn't write anything about Michael Moore's dumb movie. I spoke about it on last week's show, and his movie is not called Humans, but something else that I'm not going to repeat because nobody should waste their time with a stupid movie just because Michael Moore's name is on it. If I'm doing listeners a disservice, it's by taking talking about this idiotic film again for the second week in a row during listener feedback. David continues, Moore's movie can stimulate a much deeper conversation than your well-respected friends give credit for, in my opinion. Thanks so much for William C. Anderson. On last week's show, I did my part by sending the interview around Bakersfield, California, which, as you might imagine, is a desert of uncommon dryness in all ways. I'll be listening to your show from now on. Thanks, David. We talk about climate change a lot on our show, and you can find over 60 conversations we have had on the subject at our website, thisishell.com, right now. I just don't think having that conversation about uh, from a starting point of an inaccurate documentary that would have been ignored if Michael name hadn't Michael Moore hadn't slapped his name on it while doing nothing else apparently when it comes to contributing to the film's content I just don't really see that as a great starting point for a climate change conversation and we appreciate the kind words about our talk with William C Anderson who was awesome and David I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Yannick Marshall this week as well That's listener feedback. If you have guest suggestions, comments on our show, questions about past guests, or just want to tell us a topic or story you'd like to hear us cover, email us, tweet it to us, or just send us a message via Facebook. This is hell coming up on This is Hell. We are definitely not all in this together when it comes to climate change. During the Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin, Jeff urges us to stop being afraid of nature. And more of your answers to this week's question from hell, as well as announcing this week's winner. We'll also be telling you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for our subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing is Alex Jerry live from late capitalism where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy this is hell the right has made their calculations and they have decided they can still save capitalism from climate change sure it's going to cost a lot of lives but not theirs so they're currently busy trying to make as much off of our planet's destruction as possible build walls arm themselves and enjoy a life that isn't really that apocalyptic to them, at least, here to make certain we all understand once and for all that we are definitely definitely not all in this together. 
social and political theorist Ajay Singh Chowdhury is author of the Baffler article, We're Not in This Together, There Is No Universal Politics of Climate Change. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ajay. Hi, Chuck. Thanks for having me. You can follow Ajay on Twitter at materialist underscore Jew, which are probably two words I haven't said on the show in that order before. <laughs> you can also, uh, Ajay is the executive director of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, and you can find out more about that organization at Brooklyn Insti- at uh, thebrooklyninstitute.com, and you can follow them on Twitter at BKLYN Institute. So you start by reminding us that in November of 2018, fires of unprecedented speed and ferocity broke out across northern and southern California. Fires are tricky things to understand the fires that burn across most of Central Africa, for example, are seasonal, mostly contained and part of a decently well-maintained agricultural cycle. Californian wildfires, while certainly nothing new, are not. They may be sparked by simple heat or a lightning strike or by a recreational accident or a glitch in the utility grid, but their frequency, intensity, and duration have all unquestionably increased due to anthropogenic climate change. How much is that increased due to I know that climate change is caused by mm-hmm. capitalism, but due to capitalist mechanisms like the overdevelopment of areas that had no residential buildings in the past, because I know that one of the problems that they do have in California are these areas where there has never been any residential, there's never been residential buildings in the past and residential buildings because of their generators, because of their fuel act like bombs in these fires. So how much is this due to not just capitalism's role in climate change, but capitalism's role in development? Oh, wow. Uh, That's a great question. Thanks. Uh, And also, again, thanks for having me on uh, today. Uh, I think you can trace quite a lot to that, actually. Um, I think you really want to be thinking about uh, when we're talking about capitalism, climate change, um, one of the many, many elements, and there are so many, and I think this is why the conversation can get like sometimes get um, almost like overbearing or it's like, oh, my God, it's too big. Uh, But one of the the sort of strands I think we want to pull on is the way in which, uh, for example, as you point out, right, um, there is a drive to push uh, residential uh, development into areas that maybe aren't the wisest from a sort of human development point of view. Um, at the same time, you're going to have uh, also uh, pushes for, you know, land accumulation. I mean, wealth accumulation, really, but like land accumulation uh, in all kinds of places, right? We're currently seeing uh, deforestation, I believe, at the highest level ever in the Amazon. I don't know if I, I haven't. This is not something I expected to talk about today, so I didn't check that fact. But I'm pretty sure it's it's cl- it's if it's not up there, it's it's close. Um, and of course, uh, the sort of incessant drive for um, for wealth accumulation, right? Capital accumulation, right? Uh, not to al- already jump to a quote from Marx, but Marx has a famous line where he says, "This is the Moses and the prophets of, of capital is you know accumulate." Um, so you're going to see residential development the way you're, you're seeing it, uh, the way you were just describing, but also, of course, a drive to turn um, previously wild land into into new agricultural land, into new um, commercial development land, uh, and also, of course, extractive zones, right, for rare earth minerals, things like that. Which all primes the environment for even more destruction due to climate change. And you write at first glance the story of the 2018 California fires is one in which everyone stands together. Rich and poor, black and white, famous and unknown. Media reports observe such celebrity actors and musicians as Miley Cyrus, Liam Hemsworth, (laughs) and Gerard Butler losing their homes or parts of them just like everyone else. In your opinion, why? Why is this script 
of We're All in This Together, rolled out each time of disaster or crisis by journalists, especially those in the TV news media. What is the point oh, of wow, always yeah. saying this? I mean, the, 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 I can give a I'll give a very like uh, sort of vernacular answer and then maybe a more theoretical one. The vernacular one is, you know, like this is such a good reach at a moment of crisis in which um, in which, uh, you know, like uh, a split is obvious. Right. Um, and it does come out You're. It's funny that you mentioned it as, as media. It is such a, a, a sort of happy and welcome and pumped out media framework. Um, so frequently, you know, one of the th funny things about this article uh, is that I wrote it uh, quite some time ago um, and was actually uh, sick with coronavirus when it, the edits came back and the editors knew that. Um, and, you know, they were like, you know what, this doesn't actually like a lot of writing in this period has required like a coronavirus rewrite or then a like uh, other rewrites. Right. Uh, and, and they were like, yeah, I don't actually think this needs it because you actually have seen this uh message rolled out so many times. And, you know, the very theoretical way of explaining this is like, you know, there's always this interest that the, you know, the bourgeoisie has, right, the sort of, and to use plain language, right, the owners of capital, owners of wealthy people, people who command a lot of wealth and power have in, in sort of expressing their interests as universal interests, right? So when there is a crisis and it is hitting certain kinds of people much more than others, uh, you can use, for example, the, uh, policing crisis right now, uh, not just right now, but for ages, uh, and the way it is specifically uh, uh, targeting and, and, and destroying the lives of black people, um, also indigenous people, other, uh, so, uh, but like specifically uh, black people, indigenous people, brown folks, and especially like when that intersects with, with, with poverty and other issues of exclusion, right? Suddenly, oh, no, 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 we're all in this together, right? We're, we're, all, we're all equal. Uh, we're all, we're all going to fight together and come up with a better, more just, more equitable world. Well, bullshit. Of course, that's not true. Um, and part of my goal in writing, you know, this article is that I feel like there's a whole set of um, around climate, there's a whole set of, you know, really well-intentioned people, some of my favorite people, like um, scientists, uh, scientists who I work with and love, um, liberals, progressives, and, and, le and, and, and people on the far left, Marxists and others, um, who still sort of want to believe this about climate, right? Like, they're like, oh, eventually we'll get enough data across the table and we'll like get past this climate denying thing. And we're all going to like, see, like we need uh, air and water and blah, blah, blah. But the truth is like, we all don't need those things at the same time or in the same measure. And it is in fact good for some folks. And I'm, I'm using good here, I guess, in a kind of scare quotes way, but it's good in a self-interested way for a lot of folks for things to sort of proceed as they are. Um, and, you know, I talk about this in the article a little bit, right? Like maybe do some mitigation adaptation, but like they're not necessarily worried about holding to a 1.5 world, which is you know, getting more and more impossible, maybe not even to a two degree world, a two degree, this is change in two degrees Celsius, just for any listeners who are wondering what I'm talking about. Uh, but in fact, they're like, yeah, we can, we can get up into the three and the four range. And those are positions that are normal to hear in a, a, a you know, if, if, if you or I got invited to, uh, I don't know, what's the big, like big convention over in Switzerland. Uh, I'm forgetting the oh, name the Davos. Davos, like, yeah, I'm invited to Davos and invited to Aspen or whatever. You know, like, you'd hear people talking about this. Uh, and it's like the interest uh, of so many people 
and it is, uh, you know, a lot of is especially concentrated in the global south. But as I talk about in that article, uh, quite a lot in the global north as well. Certainly, majorities uh, have an interest in holding to 1.5, uh, or and certainly holding to two. Uh, but that is not a universally shared interest. It is not a universally shared position. And I think there is this real hope, and I think it partially is fueled by all kinds of. Uh, sort of ideological fictions and fantasies and baggage that we have from all kinds of places. Um, there's just this hope that we're, that people will come together uh, and a desire not to have the political confrontation uh, that is clearly going to have to happen. And you point out that among the various cultural detritus of the moment, TMZ of all outlets reported that Kanye <laughs> West and Kim Kardashian had avoided the particular fate through the intervention of a private firefighting force. This was not some one-off procurement of out-of-the-ordinary solution, and beyond their staggering wealth, it had little to do with Wester Kardashian. Personally, over the past decade and a half, major insurance companies like AIG and Chubb have begun to offer private emergency services to elite policy holders. Now, this just sounds like an example, again, of glaring inequality. Does inequality cause us to not all be in this together? Can we simply have more equality, and all of a sudden we have more togetherness. Do all we have to do is just <laughs> tax the rich more and uh, give more to the poor, and all of a sudden togetherness is solved? Uh, probably not. Uh, I wouldn't mind taxing the rich some more. I mean, there there are places to start with all these things, but no, I mean, like that, you know, th that episode that, um, and I'm I'm really. Uh, I have to get again, uh, really happy you're sort of walking me through that episode again because it's funny. I haven't thought about it in that level of detail in a while. Um, it's like it's a really good microcosm, right? So it's like, uh, like we're building a world of tiered access. In fact, we already have a world of tiered access. And in the article, and in my this article is adapted from a um, a longer work that I'm that I've been working on for a long time, a very long work on on the on the politics of climate change, and. Uh, what, like we live in a global caste system, and I use that word very specifically. Like, right, you're born into a caste, you die in a caste, and I think uh, that is also becoming so uh, just patently aware beyond the communities um, that it is usually trapped in 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 this moment. Um, and you're right. Like, if if you just tinker a little around the edges, like make a slightly more uh, equal world, no, uh, the idea that that's going to like I mean, uh, like mitigate or adapt, help mitigate and adapt to uh, anthropogenic climate change? No, of course not. Um, I do think, uh, you know, high, super high taxes, confiscatory taxes, you know, uh, expropriation of all kinds of things would be a nice place to start uh, in terms of uh, beginning this kind of transformation. But the funny thing is that's almost like step two. Uh, uh, like uh, there is so much technical understanding that one needs so much scientific and technical and and technical um, sort of uh, analysis. But like to get there, right, to get to implementing some of that uh, technical uh, change. And I don't mean technological necessarily. We can get into that if you like. Um, but to get to some of that technical change, some of the sort of policy arguments that you often hear bandied about requires a massive political fight. I mean, uh, it's not. You know, um, like climate degradation is not incidental at this moment to keeping capitalism as we know it functioning. It is a sort of like necessary component. 
And if we like, I think some people imagine you can sort of tear out that component uh, and sort of just keep going, right? And the, you hear this from folks in like the nuclear industry. You hear this from folks on the left who love uh, nuclear and, and things like that as well. You hear this from some people who are, are overly optimistic about some things, under optimistic, whatever. That you can just sort of tear this out and sort of keep going with life, sort of quote unquote as we know it, right? Um, I make a joke in there about the American way of life, right? Uh, which is not really shared by all Americans and also is not like a particularly good idea and not one that I actually think that many people are that interested in it anymore. Um, but you can't just tear this out and think that things will keep running. Um, once this goes out, like essentially margins are going to collapse all over the place. Like you're going to, you don't, it's not necessarily like you automatically are in communism. Um, you could still probably have some markets and things like that, all kinds of stuff. But the idea that this would be anything recognizable to the capitalism that we have today is just fantasy land. And the idea that there aren't people who are going to fight tooth and nail who say, okay, 1 billion people are going to die. I'm okay with that. Like, I think people say oh, that's shocking. That's horrible. That's, you know, you'll say like, uh, you know, I've read books where people are like, that's, you know, X number of holocausts, right? That's 20 holocausts or whatever it is. It's like a million, right? Uh, it's much more than 20 holocausts. The, no one will stand for that. Well, actually, you know, again, this is something else I tried to point out in the article. People already stand for that, of course, right? People already are happy. Uh, happy is maybe a strong word, but oh, comfortable. Comfortable is the right word. Um, with the massive amounts of human death, degradation, dispossession, um, and just general misery that is produced by this system um, for the benefit of a, a small amount of of uh, ever smaller and more concentrated amount of wealth holders. Like, I, and I don't mean to make this sound so. Um, uh, what's the word? Uh, simplistic, and it's not—it's not simplistic. I actually, you know, as I argue in the in that article, you know, it's not like uh, the sort of head of, you know, the heads of big banks and the heads of big oil companies can like decide to stop doing this, right? Capitalism functions as a, a, with structural incentives, right? So like I make this big joke about Rex Tillerson, but he's not even the head of um, Exxon anymore. But if the current head of Exxon were to be like, yeah, let's just stop. Like they just fire him, right? Like, like, so it's not about these guys personally, um, but it is in fact about people who are going to defend that system and, and keep that system functioning as long as possible. Um, or, you know, frankly, uh, as, as long as po either, either, either ad infinitum or as long as possible to sort of stack up as much cash as you can for the whatever's coming next. So I spent all this time writing like 50 questions for you, and now you give me oh, an sorry. answer where I have to give you like three new uh, questions that I thought of during that time. No, oh, I don't man. mind I don't mind that your, uh, your uh, answers are really great. They're fantastic. I don't mind that they're long. I'm just saying that I keep thinking of new questions, which is driving <laughs> me crazy. I'll try to answer shorter. Sorry. I no, 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 no. Keep going. I want you to go that way. So do we not, from what you were just saying, do we not recognize how dependent the economy is on climate change? Do we not realize yes. how much we are yes. also compliant and complicit within that climate change? Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. Although, you know, I'm always very hesitant. I don't like to go into consumption arguments too often, um, simply because that's sort of uh, neoliberalism's whatever phrase you like, neoliberalism, okay. like capitalism, uh, contemporary capitalism, 21st century capitalism, <laughs> you choose, you choose your poison. Uh, but like it, it sometimes is the thing that is its go to, uh, depoliticization method, which is like, Oh, 
like individual consumer. If you just buy, right, like this pound of soy instead of this pound of meat, <laughs> right. like you will uh, help solve climate change or like, right, like my family, right, I'm looking behind me, right, my wife and I, we like, we've got our recycling separated and all this stuff because we're good citizens, I guess. But like, I know, like I know from my own research, that's bullshit. Uh, so like, there's a little bit that I, I hesitate on that, but at, at a more macro and it's a depoliticizing move, right? It's like, oh, I can vote with my dollars. Actually, no, voting with your dollars mostly helps create uh, split markets. And actually, we're seeing that right now, both in coronavirus. Uh, 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 yeah, especially in the coronavirus period, um, because uh, like, for example, like it's like the agricultural supply chains, uh, which are very tenuous. And I wish I had more time to talk about that in this article. Um, aren't geared to sort of switch over quickly, right? So you end up with like, uh, like when you suddenly have a huge decrease in, for example, the kinds of uh, produce that is created for um, like restaurants, uh, and you need it going to grocery stores or you need it going to food banks, that's actually a third different uh, pathway for agricultural production. Like, uh, the way we are doing things now, you can't just switch over. And in fact, like what if a small number of people with, with a little bit of, of income start creating these new markets, it doesn't actually change that overall system. So I always like to emphasize that like, I, and I like to see, and I'm always thrilled to see, and I've been seeing this so much more and it's so exciting to someone like me. Um, uh, the way in which people are framing these things as social and political issues like no this is about changing the way society functions this is the way about changing the way our state um our uh, the political economy of our state like how these things uh, and not just our state like frankly it has to be within international cooperation or else it's never going to work um that these are the kinds of things we need to be talking about not like um yeah not how much people consume that said the the idea that the current sort of whatever you want to call it, median, again, I'll call it an American way of life, is like sustainable is a farce. Um, now, it's a farce we can't change alone, but it is one that I would argue, and this is a point I make in the sort of, in, elsewhere in, in the sort of greater work, that A, A, most people in the United States do not enjoy the quote unquote American dream, and B, most people don't really want that anymore, right? It's it's exhausting. Um, it requires so much um, work and so much violence and so much um, de uh, deprivation to keep it going uh, that, in fact, once we eliminate, once we sort of uh, begin the work of, of dissipating this sort of veil of ridiculous universality, right, this idea that uh, me and Rex are really in the same boat because we breathe air, um, once we sort of get away from that, suddenly it becomes really obvious, like, wait a minute. Yeah, I don't actually want this. And not just me, but a whole host of folks. And not just the sort of usual suspects, but a really wide range of people uh, with really different interests, really different socio uh, social positions, real different uh, self-identifications, uh, really have a vested interest in a very different set of uh, climate policies, call them eco-socialism, call them whatever you like. I don't 
truly care about the terminology here that much, but call, you know, call it whatever you like, that are so fundamentally different than what is coming down, even from quote unquote, you know, I don't know, I think your listeners are probably well aware of this, but from quote unquote, like, you know, center left or liberal commenta uh, commentators and also uh, policy and politicians, right? Um, so, you know, they're like, oh, we're gonna do a little bit with fuel standards. Um, my one of my favorites is, of course, the old Obama bridge fuel, you know, gas, uh, what's it called fracking will be a bridge fuel. I think that came up in this year's uh, election as well. But I mean, these things are all ridiculous. They're, they're absurd, uh, particularly when you go into um, the natural scientific literature, you'll see and natural scientists are for good reasons are often very um, reticent to sort of speak. Um, and this is, I think, changing quite a lot, but to speak uh, in explicitly and radically political terms, simply because it's very much outside the framework of, of the work they are doing. But if you go and look at a lot of the natural scientific uh, research on this, the like climate science, things like that, people will be like, oh, yeah, it's doable if you stop all carbon production last year, <laughs> like, or carbon, you know, like, like, like the amount of urgency and the amount of radicality and it, you can see this coming through in some more mainstream uh sources as well uh, but it's just so out of tune with what is called real uh, realism uh in uh or what is what is not called sorry is sort of presented as realistic uh, in political discourse, they're so at a, a disjuncture at this point. And it's not only, I think, in the science. Um, it's also in the way people are living this. People can tell. Uh, and uh, uh, and all, all the sort of layered crises of our moment, um, whether you want to talk about inequality, whether you want to talk about climate change, whether you want to talk about um, uh, legitimation crises, whether you want to, uh, and the increased need, right? I talk about this in the article as well. 25% uh, of Americans are employed surveilling other Americans, right? Like, th and that's normal, right? This is something that's happening all around the world. Um, these are all interrelated. And as you sort of, I think, hinted, Chuck, in, 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 in one of your questions there, um, it is kind of a vicious cycle, right? You like, Oh, I need a little more of this. So I need a little more of this. I need a little more of this. And one of the really, really, I think, fascinating things for me, at least uh, from a coming from a sort of research perspective as well, is that we're throwing more and more at this. Right. Uh, every year, you know, we we, uh, you know, it ticks up the, you know, the atmosphere, uh, constant, uh, sorry, carbon concentration goes up, right? Parts per million. I think we're at like 417 or something. It sort of fluctuates by season, but whatever, which is like, uh, like I remember like 10 years ago or so that that was like, I think that was considered like unthinkable that we would get to that. And, and, and people can feel this both in the effects of just like, uh, of ordinary climate, but I think people can feel it in the way in which, uh, this destabilizes, uh, everything. And not just destabilizes, but sort of shakes like like we are sucking so much out of our social systems, out of our natural systems and out of our communities um, to keep this sort of machine running. I call it an extractive circuit in the rest of my work uh, that doesn't work for everyone, like doesn't work for most people at all. And I, I think more and more people feel that. So on this uh, right-wing climate realism, you point out or you talk about how there is this idea amongst the right that, hey, we can suffer a few billion losses. We can still yeah. build our walls. We can still have our lifeboats. We can still have our islands. We can still have our luxury ships where we stay away from pathogens. 
and the rest of the surly lot of human beings so we can have our continued capitalism despite its damage to climate change. And to what extent have we already seen this playing out? Because some people might think that that's not the case, because I think we've seen it with Boris Johnson and COVID in the UK. We've seen it with Jair Bolsonaro for certain in Brazil. So how is right wing climate realism already taking place? I want to make sure people think, understand that this isn't some future theory that's going. No, that's right. And I really appreciate you saying that. And and it's both present and it's also past. Um, and so I'll talk about present and then maybe I'll talk about past. Let me just write that down. Um, but like, as you mentioned, a uh, Bolsonaro is a great example, um, in a longer version of this writing, you know, that, uh, you know, I talk a lot about this sort of burgeoning, um, and this might again seem strange to listeners, but it's a real thing. Google it; it's real. Um, in Europe, there are uh, sort of nascent green-black alliances. Uh, what, what does that mean? It means um, ecological parties working with uh, fascist, neo-fascist, whatever you want to call them, parties. Um, and you, and in fact, this is not that new. Uh, that in Europe has gone. You know, there has always been a kind of environmental conservationism of the right um, that you can find in, for example, Nazis. Um, but yes, yeah, you can see this also. One of the reasons I try to stay away from like, I love that phrase, right wing climate realism, and, I, and the way it's so capacious, is that I already look at things like the European Union's refugee policy, or the American militarizations of the border, or our migrant detention networks, or our prison system, um, as forms of right wing climate realism. I mean, I start with that insurance story. It's so it's kind of banal in a way, right? It's like silly. It's like about insurance and private services. Like, what's this have to do anything? Because it's a nice, small, easy to grasp example of something that is a way that in which we are ordering our world, right? Some people will get access to stuff. Other people will get the shit end of the stick. Um, and that is something that you absolutely can see in the world right now. Um, I think there is actually too much evidence, uh, uh, too much emphasis on sort of climate denialism versus climate realism in uh, a lot of literature on this. Um, again, I think the idea that it's all climate denial, again, I think it comes from a good place. It comes from like a nice place of the heart that I appreciate in a lot of folks that they're you know, like, oh, if, again, if we just get everyone to agree on the facts, we'll see the solutions. Um, but I just don't, A, we're actually at a, believe it or not, a low point of climate denial. This is something that, uh, again, in longer work I talk about, but, you know, pretty much in terms of the United States, which is unquestionably the global capital of, of climate denial, it's only like, it's like less than a, it's not even a third. It's like, 29% or 28%, I forget what the exact numbers are, but like of people actually are like honest to God climate deniers. Uh, there's much more people who are like, yeah, well, let's just not do anything about it. Um, and the climate, the right wing climate realism thing, I, I, I like to, uh, I like it because it can cover my like eco fascists, right? In like, let's say Europe, people who are explicitly like climate change is bad. Uh, let's close up the border, make sure like, you know, 
France is, or Germany is taken care of and fuck everyone else like in, in, as much as we can or like our climate's going to be fucked a little and if we can just keep out the like everyone else it'll be fine we just need some in for labor purposes right like that it, right like there's people who are like explicit about it then you've got your like Bolsonaro's as you as you mentioned right who are sort of less explicit about it they are climate deniers in public um, but really they are building a world preparing for climate uh, and I think you can see that in, in all kinds of other places as well. I think that, uh, and then of course the United States is is the primo example always, um, right? Uh, you know, Trump in his official statements is like what he calls it like Chinese conspiracy. It's not real. Like it's some kind of not, you know insane talk. Um, but uh, actually, one of my funniest, the funniest things I think that's come out of the uh, Trump administration was that they put out this bizarre report on. Um, fuel efficiency standards and the fuel efficiency, they were like, look, fuel efficiency standards won't actually, uh, change much. They won't actually budge the needle too much, uh, on climate issues. So it's not worth the cost. Now that's a little bit annoying. And, you know, I would like those standards back in and like, uh, you know, changed for the massively for the better, as you can kind of hear from what I'm saying. Um, but there's a way in which they're not lying. Uh, like the tiny nudge and the tiny reform here is simply not realistic. And I think that is one of the most underlying uh, and important sort of realizations that I hope folks sort of start. And I and not just hope, but I see folks coming to again and again around climate in particular is that what is being presented as realistic is absurd and what is being presented as radical is actually like the bare minimum uh and that these things again do not line up evenly for different folks uh and so we are setting ourselves up i mean i hope uh for quite a fight and and it's visible in the world around us those insurance policies it's funny that kanye west story right um it had already happened in Colorado in 2014. There was, I think, uh, Naomi Klein uh, wrote about it in her uh, one of her climate books, right? And then earlier, like the, people have been building these systems for a long time. Those migrant det detention systems didn't just pop up overnight. Uh, the right can sort of react the way the right does, and it builds a right-wing climate realist world pretty easily. Um, it's much harder for the left um, to sort of. Right, it's always is right. This is a classic problem of the left, right? You, right, you don't actually hold all the levers of power uh, to to come to to be able to uh, sort of articulate a, a cohesive, coherent, and powerful uh, force, right? Not just articulate a message, but articulate a power, articulate the force to force through these kinds of changes, because these changes are not going to come uh, simply by like argument. They are not going to come by me, I'll, I'll not to be overly self-deprecating, but they're not going to come from me writing a nice article about it or writing a longer book about it. It's not, that's not going to cause change. What's going to cause change is going to be uh, very, very, very massive and very disparate uh, people um, sort of demanding and using as what levers of power they have, whether that be uh, levers on the state, whether that be levers in, in, in the workplace, whether that be le levers all in culture, levers all over the place to make this happen. I don't see this question uh, that separately, in fact, separately at all from, for example, the abolition discussions that are happening right now around like, why do we, wait, why do we want this police? Like, it's actually not an ancient institution, right? Modern policing is, only a couple hundred years old max, right? Like, 
Uh, it's basically to co-terminal with capitalism. Um, it mostly is about protecting private property in the U.S. Also, uh, specifically about you know growing out of uh, out of you know slave patrols and things like that. Uh, wait, does this really serve all of us? Again, that's a very big question, um, and it can be very sort of addling. Uh, but it's one that's very clearly and palpably being asked, and people are starting to really organize and articulate articulate. Uh, what they are thinking about around it and organize around it more importantly. Just a couple more questions for you. You sure. are concerned about a gradual latent lateral exit from contemporary yes. capitalism into forms of what would be more precisely termed neo-feudalism. Yes. To you, what is neo-feudalism and how close are we already to neo-feudalism? That is, thank you. Uh, and I know that some of the, I hope the terminology isn't alienating for folks, uh, but it, I, I, I like it, it. I think it's quite accurate, actually. Um, you know, I, I started using this word neo-feudalism in my work. I'm trying to think of what the earliest was, but like uh, one of my colleagues, uh, an, an economist, uh, also at Brooklyn Institute, uh, Raphael Champ, and I wrote an article back actually in 2016. Uh, it published the day before the election, but it was written long before then. Um, in which we talked a little bit about, it was mostly about um, comparing the political economies of um, fascism with the political economies of, 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 of the economy of neoliberalism, you know, what's the similarities, what's the differences. But uh, we talked about neo-feudalism in, in there as well. And in here, I'm really sort of digging into it because um, there are some on the left, and you know, I, I consider I'm a, I'm a Marxist, I'm, I'm a heterodox Marxist, uh, but I'm a Marxist, right? And there are some, uh, particularly on the Marxist left, but also this is like widely held, like progressives, self-identified progressives love this kind of narrative, where it's like things kind of only get better, or if they get worse, they're about to get better. That's basically like an argument Hegel made a long time ago. Uh, and like, I just don't buy it. It's just, first of all, it's just clearly untrue. Um, and second of all, uh, so people, I think a lot of people are like, oh, if this is it, this is the breaking point. Finally, right, we're not going to be able to do capital accumulation anymore. And if you look in mainstream economic literature, um, the, you know, the literature around secular stagnation, literature around bending productivity curves. And again, uh, maybe listeners who are super into that stuff, that, that will those things will ring a bell. If you're not, don't worry about it. Um, but basically, it is this like sort of interesting question, not often framed this way in economics, but that we are throwing more and more at a sort of flagging economic growth rate and getting less and less out of it. And by we, I actually mean society, not like we as in, in as in like some coherent group of individuals. Um, and I think a lot on the left want to, would assume like, oh, well, that means capitalism is going to crash, right? It, right? Uh, and even someone, even Marx uh, said, uh, you just read the Communist Manifesto, right? He literally said like, it could be that you overcome this or that it's the common, he also says common ruin of all. He doesn't quite do say what uh, I think is, and everyone always forgets common ruin of all, uh, but, and what I'm saying is it's like common ruin of some is a possibility as well. Um, and you could imagine very easily, again, uh, partially because it's already being built in the world that we live in, a, a world of, of, of parcelized sovereignties, right? Some places are nation states. Some places are essentially company towns. Some places are warlordville, uh, right? Like uh, where we're not really doing capitalism anymore. Uh, I mean this in a very sort of technical sense. Like we're not doing a process of um, economic expansion uh, and um, sort of 
com- whatever you want to say, e- economic expansion and, and continued accumulation um, through uh, a reinvestment pr- uh, process that is geared towards the ever increasing, um, ever increasing amount of production. Uh, rather, we will have slid into a steady state, which in eco- ecological economics literature is so often treated, uh, and I think correctly so, as like, that's what we want. Okay, we want to get to a steady state. We want to get to a circular economy or some kind of steady state economy, probably not at the current levels for the global north that like the, the rich, the top 10%, the top 1% enjoy, um, but that is like equitable. You know, that does not have to be like asceticism, by the way, like, like, people been to like Portugal, like it's okay. Like go to Kerala. It's like very nice there in India. Uh, unfortunately it's getting, uh, destroyed by fascism and by climate change. But, um, we can see, uh, neo-feudalism as of the sort of step as, as one sort of horrible step beyond capitalism that is actually worse where it's just like, actually we don't need that much productive activity anymore. People are going to have a more direct relationship, um, as in feudalism, where it is sort of like a compact, like some people work directly for the violent power and other people are just cut out. Um, and I, I call it neo cert I, I go through a sort of like little, like cute, uh, semi cute, cute, maybe is the wrong word. Um, but like sort of way in which we can reimagine what feudalism is, uh, in the modern era. Cause again, it's not mean like knights and monks and shit. all become the like, end all be all of the, of the, of the contemporary world. Um, but uh, it is something that is functionally different than capitalism, and yet, in fact, in many ways more horrifying, and all the more horrifying because it is something we can already see coming to power in, some, in, in places. There are places in the world right now where um, private security, like war zones, right, war zones, where private security is more prevalent than like even the supposed armies that are fighting. Um, and when you look at things like armies and, and police and things like this, they're shot through with private power. Private power answerable not to any, you know, like even nominal, even the thinnest veil of liberal, democratic, whatever you want to call it, bourgeois democracy, even that thinnest veil is sort of stripped away and we just have direct coercion. Now, of course, that was always a, a thing that existed in the past in colonialism. Uh, and so that's the other sort of side of that neo-feudal stick. I think you could also think about it as a kind of universal, uh, not universal again, but like uh, global. That's the right word, not universal, global uh, colonialism. And I think that's, again, something that you see happening in this moment in places like the United States, in places like Great Britain, where people who previously felt protected by the nation state system, people who felt protected by sort of capitalism as we know it, people who felt um, safe and secure in the world are suddenly uh, like, oh, shit, Uh, I'm getting a taste, just a taste a little taste of what being colonized means. Um, even though people in those spaces, right, uh, I already talked about African-Americans, I already talked about uh, Native Americans here in the U.S., um, had already experienced uh, colonization right right here within our borders as well, right? Um, so these two things, I, this sort of like whatever you want to call it, global sort of expansion of the colonial relationship or uh, a return to or a sort of building out from within of a kind of neo-feudalism are, to me, very possible uh, outcomes of this moment that I hope people don't take this as fatalistic. I'm not a defeatist or a fatalist about this kind of things at all. I hope that that's very motivating. Understand that some people want that. 
Some people are like, yeah, global colonialism. Let's make it happen. Some people are like, neo-feudalism. Wait, I get to be like, I'm going to cash out. It's been a good run here at BP. Uh, and I'm going to cash out and hire as much security as I can and hope for the best. Uh, and, you know, I talk about uh, uh, this a lot for the colonial past in that article because that, of course, was things that happened in places like South Asia and in places like Haiti, you know, hundreds of years ago. And it lasted a long time. And that's the other thing I really try to argue here is that, like, folks say, well, you can't make that last, right? Too many people will be will be dispossessed. Too many people will be crushed down. Well, no, it only gets destroyed when you actually try to decolonize that system. And it takes, a, and in those cases, it took a long time. Um, one of the things that I spent a long time working on for that article was calculating the percentage of the population it took uh, to hold down India, which was one of the most populous places in the world at the time uh, for most of the colonial period. And it was 0.05% of the population. This is the Brits uh, plus uh, Indian collaborators. That's not a lot of people, um, an armed group essentially holding down against the interests of a vast majority of people. So uh, again, I don't want people to take that as a defeatist or a fatalist thing, but I said it almost like, I mean, I hate to use this kind of language and people will get upset and write angry letters to me, but whatever. Like it is a call to arms. It is saying, hey, uh, hey folks, like if we really are serious about um, about mitigating and adapting for climate because we want to less frankly we're sick of the world we're exhausted by the world we want a different way of doing things and we want uh not a world for, you know, the other thing i hate is this like world for our children or our grandchildren no the world right now like we want life to be better for people right now um requires us to a uh build up this uh, a, a tremendous political power, sort of rethink what we think of as the sort of subject of politics in, I think, climactic terms. Um, and that's, again, not everyone. Not everyone's on that boat, you know? Uh, and and uh, I can't remember what B was, honestly. <laughs> but there you go. That's okay. And when it comes to the percentage of uh, people within India that were controlling the pop were controlling the country, uh, that would translate here in the United States to only six hundred and twenty-five thousand people. You do not need that many. Oh, people I didn't to actually be do that. Yeah. yeah, that's not much. It's it's not that much. It doesn't take that many people to control a population. And by the way, if I could use any single word to describe your definition of neo-feudalism, that word would definitely be cute. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so, Ajay, one last question for you. Sure. Social and political theorist Ajay Singh Chowdhury has been our guest. He is the author of the Baffler, Baffler article, We Are Not In This Together. There is no universal politics of climate change. You can follow Ajay on Twitter at materialist underscore Jew. He made me say that twice on the show. It's making me really feel good. <laughs> <laughs> Jay is the executive director of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research and a core faculty member specializing in social and political theory. And you can find out more about the Brooklyn Institute at thebrooklyninstitute.com. One last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question you may hate to ask. Oh, no. Our audience may hate your answer. What is it, Alex? I can't even remember now. All right, listen. Wow, I've been saying this for 26 years and I just forgot it. So uh, you hate to ask uh, audience uh, or guests may hate to answer and uh, audiences will hate the answer. Yes. I can't get it right. I can't even get it right. This is this is the question for how the question you may hate to ask our audience may hate your response or you will hate to answer. Good Lord, I got to write that down after 23 freaking years. <laughs> Ajay. Yes. 
how is the climate how is climate change not the apocalypse and what happens when oh. we what happens when we believe it is the apocalypse thank you i actually love that question um and in fact i wanted to say i love the title of your program um there's a wonderful line from uh walter benjamin uh i think he's actually maybe quoting someone else or paraphrasing but it's like you know hell is not something that's coming for us or coming in the after, right? Uh, it's this life here and now. Um, and, uh, and I think there's a way in which we use these theological categories sometimes, um, uh, both out of just sort of like, um, what's the word, like mechanical, it's just there, right? It's so thick in our culture, particularly right in, in, in this culture, Christianity, um, it's just there. Um, but also it's very comforting. Um, the idea of climate change as the apocalypse is just so comforting um, in that sort of dance of death, middle ages kind of way where it's like, oh, everyone will finally be, be able, everyone's going to get their comeuppance. And the truth of the matter is, um, and oh man, I, I, I could do like citations. I would love to, cause I could like send people articles or something like this, but like, if you talk to a lot of folks who are interested in projections and folks who are interested in and who really you know, won't do it on the record, but they'll do it off the record and they'll talk about sort of possible climate presence and climate futures. Um, it's clear, again, that like you can mitigate uh, at uh, uh, an increase of three degrees or even four. Now, some folks might say, OK, that might trigger a bunch of things, but things uh, politics and it's always a gamble. And. Mitigating at three or four is not an extinction level event for humans. It's an extinction. It's a genocide level event for a lot of humans. Um, but it is not the end of the world. Fire and brimstone does not fall from the sky. One of the things I loved about your opening question um, about the sort of like, is this because of like over residential development? And then I wanted to bring in like other kinds of land development is like, I think people are like, keep waiting. I think sometimes when we have the apocalyptic mode, which again, empirically is not necessarily the case and really isn't even the likely case. Uh, but B, when we have that mode in mind, we're like waiting for like the fire to fall from the sky or something like this. Instead of thinking like, oh, capitalism's insatiable drive for more land uh, to, to dispossess people and to uh, frankly dispossess nature in some ways, um, like and to, to ever increase and ever uh, incorporate larger amounts uh, until it is total uh, of the planet um, results in things, for example, like uh, novel coronaviruses, right? It is things like this that will be, right? And this is not the end of the world. It's not particularly nice, is it? Uh, but it's not the end of the world, and yet we are all living through it. So I really actually think that um, the is not the apocalypse in the sense that everyone's going to die. Some people are going to live quite well. Uh, you know, a joke I often say in my talks is that other people will, uh, most people will continue to live just more miserably so. So that's not the way I think most people imagine the apocalypse. Um, but also, I think it's a story. It's a narrative. It's a story we have to get past to see the political reality where there are people with different interests um, contending hopefully contending for power um, to make a different uh, reality present right here, right now in this uh, ecological niche that can still sustain uh, mass human life. Um, before essentially uh, some kind of neo-feudal um, moment comes to full fruition. Uh, and in fact, 
we might be locking out the possibility of that kind of mass fear of flourishing. Ajay, I cannot thank you enough for this conversation. <clears throat> it's been really fantastic. And I just got to say this. The question from hell is the question we hate to ask you, hate to answer. Our audience hates your response. That's what it is. God damn it. I finally got it right. <laughs> Ajay, thank you so much for being on our show. Everybody should check out your article over at the Baffler. We are not in this together. There is no universal politics of climate change. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Uh, thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can go to thisishell.com. You can click on support. or And while, and while you're there, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up during the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin urges us to stop being afraid of nature. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. This week's question mail is, what should Chuck do to cure his stomach pain? Our favorite answer to, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. You can find the This Is Hell medical face mask right now by going to This Is Hell and clicking on support and going to our store where we have all of our stuff. Of course, you can just win it for free by having the our favorite answer to this week's question mail which is what should chuck do to cure his stomach pain you can email us your answer you can message them to us via facebook via twitter alex how are listeners answering the question from hell so far this week's question from hell is what should chuck do to cure his stomach pain kcc says avoid popcorn yes popcorn give you stomach pain yeah it's really bad for me yeah damn I know, this, really this, bummed this, out. This really is hell. It is awful. Uh, Warren L. says, take a dump on the Confederate flag. I did that already. Joshua J. says, I wrote something snarky and deleted it. I can't be snarky with real pain. I had stomach pain for a long time, and homemade kefir did the trick for me. I'm really? sorry. Uh, Jack B. says, weed-infused peppermint tea. Okay. I think Chuck is weed-infused. I don't know if he, the tea's <laughs> going to help. I just need the tea, I guess. Uh, Jeremy T. says, do a detox and not some stupid juice cleanse. X out all the smoking, drinking, coffee, all of it. Oop. How many people want, to, want me to kill myself, you know? <laughs> One day at a time for just a couple months. Gee, see if that helps please. first. I know how difficult this is. I've done it. You want to scream at the universe that you should be allowed at least one vice, especially when there are hardcore drug users with less troublesome stomachs. But sometimes the break is exactly what the body needs, even if the mind disagrees. Masturbating is not a vice, correct? He didn't write anything. Jeremy didn't write anything about that. Uh, Daniel S. says, I have been diagnosed with the diverticulitis. If you have been diagnosed with diverticulitis, yes. eat light, no red meats, or anything that may constipate <sighs> you. Antibiotics are a good thing to decrease the infectious process in the bowel. And three, once the pain and inflammation is gone, could take one to two weeks, adjust your diet to increase natural fiber, fruits and vegetables. No straining with bowel movements. Sorry for being graphic and blunt. It worked a couple it, I it worked a couple years ago with an I worked a couple years ago with an internist and handled a lot of divertic divertic patients. Good luck, Chuck. <laughs> divertic. You, I'm bitter, blind, broke, gap, divertic. Radio host <laughs> Jeffy D says, try hysterectomy. It worked for Hitler. <laughs> if it's good enough for Hitler. Garrett says he should remember to properly thank Neil next time. Then his <laughs> kind of thing won't happen again. Sebastian M says, take a vacation to a slightly more civilized country with health care. <laughs> Laura, Laura S says, just do everything your unwife tells you to do. <laughs> I think that's a little bit unfair. Daniel Z says, meditate. Chris S. says, Lysol enema in the morning and a bleach colonic at night. Do not inject them. Not safe. Direct rectal application only. 
Adeline W. says, get rid of it. The whole thing. Who needs it? <laughs> I got three more. We'll wait till after, Jeffy. So on Patreon tomorrow, we will be going back up north to consider the really weird history of a small town that lives off the land, the land then going away, becoming a boom tourism town, then going bust all in about 25 years. And we'll also be going back up north to small town America to see how they're reacting to the murder of George Floyd. Alex, what is the interview that we are going to be playing on Patreon tomorrow? Did you decide? Uh, no, you want to pick one of those Fatima Budo interviews? Uh, you want to play both? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, we're going to be playing both of our interviews with Fatima Bhutto, who is the niece of uh, the late Benazir Bhutto, and she did not like <laughs> the late Benazir Bhutto, but it's a fascinating conversation. I was mentioning how conversations with her and Arundhati Roy in the past pointed out to how conspiracy theories had taken over Pakistani politics and how what the impact was on everybody within Pakistan due to that you know focus on conspiracy theories, as we're seeing here in the United States. And we were even talking back then about how it's going to come here and what the impact would be. And we can see what that impact is with the Trump administration. But you can only hear that if you subscribe to completely listener-supported This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. You can also show your support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com, clicking on support, where you can see all the ways in which you can help out This Is Hell, including all of our merch. Coming up, we not only are going to have the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, we'll also read the rest of your answers to this week's question from Hell. Announce our favorite and the winner of this week's prize. We'll find out from Alex, who's on next week's show. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week were written while I was high. This is Hell I Know You Have. Hefe, on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Fear of a black wilderness. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Throughout the 400 years since it emerged, capitalism has believed it cannot exist without maintaining deadly domination of black bodies. And it's been molding social discussion to promote this belief. Capitalist power derives from the mistrust of nature and has used black bodies as the anthropomorphic depiction of nature's wild untrustworthiness. First, we had to make the Africans into our slaves because otherwise they wouldn't become Christian. Clearly, if left in their own land, worshipping terrifying animistic spirits or some crazy thing called Allah, they would eventually be overwhelmed by disease, poverty, and the pests of the natural world, a world which was itself not to be trusted. It was for their own protection. Slavery in the United States was eventually outlawed except when imposed on criminals, so black people were shaped in the propaganda story into basic natural criminals. To prevent them from enjoying the opportunities of freedom, the dominant society criminalized their presence among white citizens, even to the point of policing the flow of their genes through Jim Crow laws. Eventually, the Jim Crow system was defeated by appeals to society's conscience rather than its fear. Losing battle after subsequent battle of conscience, white cruelty has finally settled on police as the main lethal army and prisons as the main segregating tool safeguarding society against scary nature in the form of the black person. For centuries before the advent of capitalism, most of civilization was convinced by rulers that it couldn't survive without dominating women and the poor. 
in many similar ways to how black people came to be used, women, poor people, and nomadic peoples were seen as the main reflections of untrustworthy nature until capitalism moved the imposition moved the imposition of its harshest propaganda of social mistrust onto the black body. What has never changed during this multi-millennial propaganda blitz is that it's always been best for the elite if we fear each other. It's great, especially for men, if we buy into the fear of nature by distrusting women. It's great, especially for those who have an obscene amount of wealth, if we buy into the fear of nature in the guise of poor people. It's great for those who profit or believe they do from the ownership of private property if most people can be convinced to believe in the necessity of the police to keep black people under control through the threat of death. Other manufactured races have been and might be used along the way as additional placeholders for the totem of inscrutably evil nature, but the black body remains, after four centuries, the place where society has located the heart of its fear of the unpredictable world outside rational control. To placate the owning class, the primacy of ownership, and the so-called traditional hierarchy of power must be understood as a rational part of keeping nature within acceptable boundaries. In the end, the police, who are there mostly to protect private property, can justify wielding physically threatening power over the rest of us by making the case that it is acceptable and necessary to use violence against a select group, a group whose unpredictable, volatile nature has been cruelly sculpted since the beginning of capitalism to fit the needs of the owners, whose interests must be protected from black people, the nature of whom, if unregulated, could, refer to, could revert to its incendiary African condition. The others of us, who are also not to be trusted, are meant to understand ourselves as only slightly more trustworthy than black people and therefore much less likely to be killed by the enforcers of the hierarchy. Clearly, the mistrust of nature must extend to human nature. Black people, finding themselves over and over on the most punitive end of the police officers and therefore capitalism's violent force, and having finally judged society's chances to answer calls for reform through day-to-day -day civil procedures exhausted, have risen up, as they have many times before, but this time with far greater support of the non-black world. Many wonder how much longer we're going to have to tolerate these institutions that don't trust us and indoctrinate us to distrust each other and ourselves. How much longer are we going to willingly inhabit the story that nothing unpoliced or unowned is trustworthy? Can we ever break free of this story? What would we need to do? The suggestion seems to be we would definitely need to erase the cops, our leaders, the owners and bosses, and our landlords. And I have to say, that's a great suggestion. Coeval with ideas for reform has arisen a large movement to re disrespect authority, even in medicine and science. But that movement has often been found to be in the service of the power hierarchy itself. Yet we do need a complete overhaul of society without the holdover prejudices from previous generations. I know this sounds a lot like Khmer Rouge talk, but that's one of the old patterns we definitely don't want to repeat. For one thing, it would be way too much work. Two things on our list of things to avoid, workaholism and psychotic Khmer Rouge-style murderous paranoia. But let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. People of color 
have been acclimated by indoctrination to the desire for proximity to whiteness, its supposed qualities, and its attendant privileges. Everyone has been deluded by the oppressive system. The oppressors and the oppressed who replicate the system of oppression within themselves, workers desire the position occupied by their bosses and thus reflexively defend the intangible matrix into which those spaces have been carved. When it comes down to it, we hate ourselves and others and nature and that which controls nature. While simultaneously loving and relying on all those things, when people come to this realization, they are compelled to urge everyone to burn it to the ground. And really, what could be better for everyone? We know it in our secret selves, and some of us are even consciously aware. What could be better for living things on the planet than to stop civilization dead in its tracks? Power down the grid. Sure, we'll have to go through the apocalyptic phases. There will be the total war of all against all phase, followed by the soylent green phase of food riots, uh, the Mad Max phase of petro militias, the climate change catalyzed deluge, and finally the disconnected archipelago of islands of groups of humanity cut off from each other by the grand global ocean. A time of respite shall then settle in over the weary planet. During that time, the forests will return. Maybe a few cultures can take it upon themselves to clean up a little, while wild plants and animals rebuild their numbers. Languages will be reinvented. New philosophers will emerge, ones that don't bug you with stupid questions like, excuse me, friend, do you believe in motion? But if Achilles wants to go a certain distance, don't you agree he must first go half that distance? And even before that, halfway to that halfway point, if you hear anything like that on our island, Promise me you will instantly murder that person. We cannot reproduce the garbage ideas of the previous, say, 8,000 years. We must invent our own garbage ideas. I think we are on the pathway already, and it would be nice if we could somehow do the oral history thing of preserving ideas in rhymes and songs we repeat in rituals so as to remember them accurately. We have to invent ritual recitations about a humanity possessing no greed or capitalism, no fear of limitless nature, somehow without reintroducing the ideas we want to annihilate. Write songs about valuing all life without implying that it's possible not to. Write songs like, we're a happy tribe, nomadic and free, wandering all over the world, which isn't owned by anyone, without causing someone to think, what a great idea, owning the world. How do we sing about a world without prisons, without giving some jerk the bright idea to put people in cages again? Maybe we can start small now, build gradually to the apocalypse series and its great aftermath, start by abolishing the police, and maybe wedge in there some ideas of wealth redistribution that don't assume people are going to try to game the system, even if sometimes, of course they will, force into the general storyline the idea that people are to be trusted first. We have to force the authorities and their owners to admit that they're the ones out of control. They're the dangerous thugs. They're animals. They're the ones who will be murdered unless they actively prove they're worthy of being allowed to exist. Apparently, the police are already complaining about how they're being portrayed in the media with people able to view so many personal phone video examples of cops being thuggish and violent out of all proportion to the civil disobedience they're supposedly trying to control. The cops are starting to understand 
that the story they've been telling about black people is now being told about the cops themselves. Maybe now the conversation will start to change. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. So I started the show by calling Alex Eric, and then I couldn't remember the <laughs> intro to the question from hell. So, dude, I don't know. My stomach might be having a little bit of a relapse right now. I'm not too I sure. Know. Well, you know, if it was good enough for Hitler, a, a hysterectomy <laughs> is the way to go. Who am I? Who am I who, to I, say uh, if who, something who, was good enough for Hitler, <laughs> it's not good enough for me? The guy pampered himself. Right. Let's, let's, I mean, <laughs> nice house. Nice. Nice bunker. Are you kidding me? Wow. Jesus. I mean, had, do you see the carpets in those bunkers? If anything, he was at he least was. a good at you know, designing bunkers. He was good at designing bunkers. He had the best designers. <laughs> I mean, look at the, you know, look at the designs of those uh SS uniforms. That's like high <laughs> sure. deco fashion. God. All right, dude. Let's start let's stop complimenting Nazis. <laughs> Look, credit where credit is due. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Until <laughs> next week. What? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, as always, Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what should Chuck do to cure his stomach pain? What should I do to cure my stomach pain? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. You can see and order your very own This Is Hell face mask right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still leave your answer. You only have a few more seconds to this week's question from hell by leaving it on our Facebook page or tweeting it to us or emailing it to us, but we must have your answer now. Alex, do you have the rest of this week's answers to the question from hell? Yeah, I got four more. Yehoke asks, has Chuck tried a liniment of the finest snake oil? <laughs> what should Chuck do to cure his stomach pain? Greg G says, austerity, obviously. Barrett M says, go to a doctor and make sure his stomach isn't emptying directly into his colon. As per the above picture. Isn't like, that, I, I couldn't even, when I even looked up at the picture, I still didn't see that. That's how dumb I am. Isn't that how your stomach and colon, I don't know, I don't know. stomachs. And then know. finally, Josh W. says, seppuku, if all else fails. I think that might be the second person who suggested that I just kill myself. And then there were the two people who suggested I change my lifestyles, his lifestyle in a way that would lead me to killing myself. My answer to this week's question, Mel, is uh, what should Chuck, what should I do to cure my stomach pain? Look, don't put it all on me. It's not about what I should do. It's about what you can do to make me feel better. And what you can do to help heal my aching stomach is visit thisishell.com and click on support and help us out. That is, if you truly, truly care. Shameful. <laughs> the answers I liked most were I did like Greg saying austerity, obviously. I liked Warren saying take a dump on a Confederate flag, although the logistics of that seem a little bit difficult. Uh, Aaron saying peppermint oil, it eases spasms. I'm actually going to look into that. Kevin saying snort the sidewalk, blood dripping from the ears of septuagenarian Antifa super soldiers. I liked Garrett saying punch a Nazi, it might not help, but at least a Nazi will have been punched. Uh, Fabio saying we're... Kente scarf and kneel for 8 minutes and 45 seconds to which Shane replied because it will make him a bigger a-hole so all the bad stuff will flow out quicker <laughs> which is disturbing and Jason saying change his eating habits 
to a steady diet of the rich. Any suggestions there? Anything you really liked, Alex? Uh, my favorite was Adeline W's Get Rid of It, the whole thing. Who needs it? Because uh, Occam's Razor, baby. But uh, let's go with your fave. Uh, let's go with... Uh, God. Punch a Nazi. Garrett, you are the winner of this week's question from L. You have won a This Is Hell medical face mask. Garrett, L's answer again. Punch a Nazi. It might not help, but at least a Nazi will have been punched. All you have to do to get your prize, Garrett, is send us your mailing address to us on Facebook. So there you go. Alex, who's on the show next week, Monday through Thursday at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time? Uh, Monday morning, Cedric Johnson will be back on the show to talk about his non-site article, The Triumph of Black Lives Matter and Neoliberal Redemption. Hot damn. I'm really looking forward to that. That was one of my favorite interviews in the last couple of years. Also then on Tuesday, the twice canceled, so we're really looking forward to this a third time. Yeah. Robert, I know you're listening and you want to hear this one. <laughs> Eugene McCarr will be on to talk about his Harvard Press book, The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. So first he got covid and then but I we got, don't know what happened the first time. Oh, you know, we've canceled this interview three times then because he something happened with him, then something happened with you, and then something happened with you. Yeah, yeah. So this is really so annoying. everyone, so just, everyone, just be careful between blood. now and Tuesday morning. Exactly. Uh, then Wednesday, I'm real excited for this. Uh, Richard Hunsinger will be back on the show with Nathan Eisenberg to talk about their cosmonaut essay, "Mask Off: Crisis and Struggle in the Pandemic." And then Thursday? Uh, no clue about the first 45 minutes of Thursday, but then the back half will be filled with Jeffy. Thanks to this week's guest Africana Studies scholar, Yannick Giovanni Marshall, who wrote the Al Jazeera article. Black liberal, your time is up. Yes, tell the world that we are fed up. But black liberal, know that we are finished with you, too. That interview apparently pissed off quite a few liberals who do not want to discuss how liberals co-opt radical actions like the current protests against the murder of George Floyd. They never actually come up with their own movements or actions, and then they water anybody else's actions down to accommodate conservatives and to have this beautiful bipartisanism which they see as more important than justice and human lives, and you really can't have that kind of bipartisanism and camaraderie with murderous cops. So, yeah, screw liberals. Historian Paul M. Amfro was also on this week's show. He is author of Stranger Danger, Family Values, Childhood, and the American Carceral State. You know why all those nuts believe everything Alex Jones says? Because they were raised in fear of a boogeyman who was going to abduct, sexually abuse, and murder them, and not necessarily in that order. So paranoid parenting, stranger danger, isn't the greatest threat to children. What they should do is fear their family, which is where the vast majority of abuse arises. 93% of abuse arises within the family. And finally, thanks to this uh, this morning's guest, today's guest, social, politi- social and political theorist Ajay Singh Chowdhury, author of the Baffler article, We're Not In This Together, There Is No Universal Politics of Climate Change. And we want to thank Peter W. for suggesting Ajay. This week's Hangover Cure is think alkaline foods like fruits and vegetables, soybeans and tofu, as well as some nuts, seeds and legumes that are alkaline producing foods and promoting foods. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing both of our interviews with Fatima Buto and we will be going back up north to see what's happening up there. Consider small town America's history and their reaction to the murder of George Floyd. Hope to see all of you sometime in the future at This Is Hell office hours that we will have again on Friday nights when this nightmare is over. 
So, probably around Labor Day next year. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing, as always, Alex Jerry. We want to thank not only Alex and Jeff Dorchin, but also Ronaldo, Theron, and Richard for all of the work that they put into this show. There's only one, one, one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.